Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Misha Kogan, Associate Professor of Medicine here at GW and Medical Director of the GW Center for Integrative Medicine. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the Office's Administrative Director. Today, we're joined by Dr. Dale Bredesen, an internationally recognized expert in the mechanisms of neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's. Dr. Bredesen's career has been guided by a simple idea that Alzheimer's, as we know it, it's not just preventable, but reversible. His research explains the physical mechanism behind the erosion of memory seen in Alzheimer's disease and has opened the door to the new approaches to treatment. Dr. Bredesen's work has placed him at the forefront of neurological research, leading to discoveries that today underlie the RECODE protocol. He put much of his findings and research into the best-selling books, The End of Alzheimer's and The End of Alzheimer's Program. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, Dr. Bredesen. Thanks very much, Misha. Appreciate your having me. Uh, Dr. Bredesen, what is the RECODE protocol? Yeah, that's a great question, Misha. So we spent 30 years in the lab looking at the fundamental nature of the neurodegenerative process. So the whole idea was what actually happens when you have degeneration, which is, as you know, so common. About uh, one, uh, about 100 times as many Americans will die, of the currently living Americans will die from Alzheimer's disease as have died from the COVID-19 pandemic. So as you can see, it's a huge problem. So we looked at all the drivers, and the idea then is to target those instead of trying to go after the disease with a monotherapy that does not target the drivers of the decline, the idea is to flip the script and identify the many different drivers, which are often 5, 10, or even 15 of these different drivers, and then to target those, whether they be things like specific pathogens or insulin resistance or specific biotoxins or chemotoxins. So the idea is to change that around to design a precision medicine protocol that is personalized and then to target those. And we've just finished actually the first clinical trial to do just that. Well, that's amazing. Um, Can you share something about the trial with us? Yes. uh, So we're actually just writing this up for publication now. But what I can say is uh, this was a small proof of concept trial. We actually tried to do this back in 2011, but the IRBs would not allow us to do it because it's multivariable. And of course, the disease itself is multivariable. It's not a single thing that's driving this process for most people. And in this, so we had 25 people, proof of concept, uh, who had MOCA scores of 18 or above. Uh, and had abnormal CNS vital signs uh, scores. These are uh, cognitive assessments. Um, And the vast majority of these people actually improved. And and for comparison, uh, in the drug trials, as you know, uh, the the big successes that have been been touted do not improve patients. They do not stabilize the patients. What they do is they slow the decline by about a third. So this was very different, where people actually got better and stayed better. So we're very enthusiastic about that approach. Well, that's wonderful. I guess uh, once the article is out, uh, there's going to be a lot of news and um, a lot of changes, I hope. Uh, Although I know that uh, you published um, the first paper with the first 100 cases um, and... um, you know, it generated kind of a mixed feelings in the scientific community. So hopefully that this trial 
is going to now begin to clear the path forward to actually do the controlled study. Do you, um, you get, do you, are you planning on setting up a controlled study? Yes, that's what we're in the middle of doing right now. So this will be a larger study. Now, by the way, the one that we just completed uh, was proposed as a randomized controlled trial. The IRB would not allow us uh, to do that. And so this, this current one is doing what others in the past have done, which is to compare historical outcomes. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a, you've been at this for a long time. It's a, a slow, slow road. I remember um, during back during your train the training the one of the first trainings you did yeah. with us uh, years ago you mentioned how NIH wouldn't fund any of this work because they felt like there's no scientific merit. Well, I hope that will change <laughs> in the next well, soon. Yeah, you know, I think anytime you're ch- trying to change the paradigm, trying to change the way you look at things, you know, you have to remember that the people who are actually reviewing it and making decisions are the ones that are doing it the old way. So no surprise, you're basically telling them that they're all wrong, and that doesn't particularly go over well. And, you know, if you go back to what Dean Ornish did with cardiovascular disease, um, it took him 16 years to get his approach approved for cardiovascular disease. And when he complained about that to a to a local politician, the politician said, it only took 16 years. How did you do it so fast? <laughs> so, yes, the, you know, the, the wheels, uh, the wheels of change turn slowly for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly how I always compare your protocol, you know, that is a sort of following in the footsteps of Dean Ornish. Um, hopefully it will take less than 16 years, but it is what it is. Yeah. How did you get started on this journey? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, thanks for asking that. So I got interested actually when I was a freshman in college in uh, the brain and its similarity uh, to computers. Um, and I got interested therefore in, you know, what goes wrong and why is brain disease so common and why is the whole phenomenon of neurodegeneration is the area of greatest biomedical therapeutic failure. As, as people say, you know, everyone knows a, a, a cancer survivor. No one knows an Alzheimer's survivor. So, you know, whether you're talking about Alzheimer's or Lou Gehrig's disease or Lewy body disease or frontotemporal dementia, PSP, CBD, just go right down the list of these horrible neurodegenerative diseases. They're relatively common. Uh, and in fact, uh, uh, Dr. Christine Yaffe has pointed out that Alzheimer's is now the third leading cause of death in the United States. So they're very common and they've been untreatable. They are death sentences. So we got very interested in what actually drives these. What are the molecular underpinnings of this neurodegenerative process? Um, and essentially, what is Alzheimer's? You know, what is this thing? And I remember going to conferences and saying, you know, we're interested in what is Alzheimer's. And people would say, well, what the heck do you mean by that? So we want to know the fundamental nature of it so that we can begin to translate some of the implications. And here's the big surprise. As we got into the test tube and we did transgenic mouse models and fruit fly models that we called Alzheimer's and the transgenic mice that we called Mautzheimer's and all these things and cell culture models, we could begin to look at the molecules that drive this. And it really suggested a very different view than the classical view. The classical view was you collect this stuff in your brain called amyloid, and then you this, this is what drives the process. And what we found was something very different, which is that you have all these upstream uh, insults, things like 
uh, you know, various pathogens that are affecting your brain and various toxins. And all of these are what drive the signaling. So you have a whole set of signals that are synaptoblastic. They're making and keeping synapses. You have a different set of signals that are synaptoclastic. They are pulling back. And it's the imbalance between these over time that leads to Alzheimer's. And as Dr. Rudy Tanzi and Dr. Robert Moyer from Harvard showed years ago, uh, the, the amyloid itself is actually an antimicrobial. So yes, it's involved with downsizing, no different than what we're seeing with COVID-19. You know, our country has gone through a recession because we are downsizing in response to an insult. That's the same thing that's happening in the Alzheimer's brain. You are downsizing in response to multiple insults. So that changed fundamentally what we want to do from trying to get rid of the protective amyloid to instead trying to identify the insults and then to address those. So we really got into this because it was something where there just wasn't an answer. And we thought maybe the thoughts are wrong. Um, So that's been that's kind of been the journey we've been on for the last 30 years. So, Dale, I I think for patients or for people who are listening to the podcast and don't actually know much about the program, I was thinking maybe you can give one or two concrete examples of sort of what's included, especially, um, you know, it's probably going to be too hard to explain specific drivers, but maybe what are the typical lifestyle changes that are involved in the program? Yeah, it's a good point. And again, the whole point here is to identify what's driving the process. And you can break this down into different groups, and then you can attack each of those groups. So just to look at you know what drives the process, anything that gives you ongoing inflammatory systemic and brain changes. So things like whether you've got a poor dentition. And as you know, repeatedly, people have found P. gingivalis, which is associated with poor dentition, in the brain itself. Uh, They also find things from your sinuses, like molds in the brain itself. Candida has been identified by pathologists as being in the brain. Herpes simplex, HHV6A, the herpes simplex coming from your lip. All these things can create states of chronic inflammation. And it's interesting because you can literally, you you can trace the molecular pathways from inflammation, for example, activation of NF-kappa B, a specific infl- inflammation-related molecule, that literally impacts the production of the amyloid itself. So what you're doing, again, is part of your innate immune system. So anything that causes chronic inflammation. Second, anything that causes a reduction in the support. This is from growth factors, from hormones, from nutrients. So if you're low on your brain-derived neurotrophic factor or your nerve growth factor or your testosterone or your estradiol or progesterone or pregnenolone or thyroid or vitamin D, any of these things, that increases. Literally what we call Alzheimer's is essentially an insufficiency. You can't keep up with the demand, whether it's because too much demand because of the inflammation or because too little support because of things like hormonal reductions. Then the third thing is, which is very common, is insulin resistance. There are about 80 million Americans who have insulin resistance, and that is an important contributor to cognitive decline of Alzheimer's disease. And so we want to understand what your HOMA IR is. We want to understand whether you have a high fasting insulin, whether you have whether you're entering you know type two diabetes or pre diabetes. Very important. 
And then the next thing is all the various toxins. And the toxins come in three different groups. It's the, the inorganics, things like mercury and things like air pollution. And then it's the organics, things like formaldehyde and benzene and toluene and glyphosate and things like that. And then it's the biotoxins, things like uh, okra toxin A and trichothecenes and things like that that are made by organisms like mold species. And then it's vascular disease. So absolutely, and it used to be said that vascular disease was different than Alzheimer's, but these are much more intimately related than we thought in the past. And so that's absolutely a contributor. And that's common. Energetics, a critical area here if you don't have enough oxygenation. And so sleep apnea, an important contributor to cognitive decline. Uh, the reduced uh, cerebral blood flow, another one. Reduced mitochondrial support. Uh, key, this is, again, why, key, uh, you know, why ketosis is so important, uh, because ketones can help to bridge that energetic gap. And then the last group is trauma. So anyone who's had head trauma over the years is at increased risk for cognitive decline. So therefore, we look at these things for each person. And as you can imagine, each person is a little different in what's caused their cognitive decline. And therefore, we target those things. So for the people who have insulin resistance, we want to get them on a mildly ketogenic, plant-rich, uh, you know, high fats, intermediate protein, and low carb, and, and hopefully zero simple carb uh, diet to get them into mild ketosis because that's what's proven to work best over the years. Uh, for those people who have ongoing inflammation, we want to identify why that is. For some people, it'll be leaky gut. For some people, it'll be chronic sinusitis. For many people, it's periodontitis. Um, and if there are specific organisms involved, we want to target those organisms. For people who have specific toxins, we want to detox them. And for all of these people, we are essentially optimizing their neurochemistry, decreasing their synaptoclastic signaling, and increasing their synaptoblastic signaling. Uh, there's some interesting work recently out of UC San Francisco on plasmapheresis um, and its benefits. So the point, again, is people who've tried to go after this as if it's a simple disease like pneumococcal pneumonia and say, okay, let's just give one drug. We always tell the patients, imagine you have 36 holes in the roof. Uh, you know, a, a drug is an excellent patch for one hole, but it really doesn't do anything for the other 35 holes. So you need to identify what those are. You need to patch those and we, we originally said 36 because you, you could identify 36 mechanisms that are all feed into the same degenerative pathway. Um, we now know of a few others, but there are not thousands. That's the good news. There, you know, there are dozens of things that feed into this degenerative pathway that includes amyloid beta, that includes phospho tau, that includes loss of synapses. This is essentially synaptoporosis. So, you know, people do change their diets, they do change their exercise, their stress, uh, uh, their stress management, their sleep. Sleep is a common contributor here. Uh, brain training is part of this. Detoxification and uh, looking at specific supplements that can be useful. So again, it's about changing the neurochemistry toward a synaptoblastic uh, neurochemistry. Um so Dale, it's of course it's a very complex program. I, I, can you shed a little bit of light on uh, how the actual Apollo Health is trying to solve the complexity here by using computation, uh, computer assistance, and the actual recode report, which is in essence a computerized version of synthesis of information, which obviously is extremely complex and difficult to interpret 
for one individual person. Yeah, this is a great point, Misha. Uh, so, you know, this is actually, I realize that the integrative approaches to medicine are a little bit more like surgery than they are like a classical prescriptive medicine. You know, when I trained in medicine, and, and I'm sure when you, although you're much younger, I'm sure when you trained as well, uh, you know, we were taught to make a diagnosis, you know, what is it, and then write a prescription or send someone to surgery as, you know, as the, you know what would be according to the case. Uh, and that's not appropriate for, or let's, let's say it's, it's not complicated enough to address the various causes and contributors. So therefore, what we wanted to do is to understand how can we gather the critical data how can we use appropriate algorithms to determine, for example, we found that there are six different subtypes of Alzheimer's disease. You know, there are ones that are more inflammatory and ones that are more atrophic and ones that are more glycotoxic and ones that are more vascular and that sort of thing. So we realized, you know, just as you know, Google knows where you shop, uh, Google knows what you're doing all day, and as they say, probably knows a lot more about you than you realize. And yet, why aren't we using these same sorts of large data set approaches and algorithms to these complicated multifactorial diseases? You know, 100 years ago, we were all dying of simple illnesses like tuberculosis and diphtheria and pneumococcal pneumonia. Now, virtually all of us are dying of complex chronic illnesses, cancer and atherosclerosis and, and uh, Alzheimer's and, and, and chronic renal failure and things like this. They have many different contributors. And there's no, again, no simple prescriptive pad approach that has worked. And so the idea is we want to be able, essentially, it's like changing the, the paradigm from using a silver bullet or for looking for a silver bullet, which has never been found for Alzheimer's. And now we're going to go to a silver buckshot model. We want to still identify the critical parameters, but now we want to spray the buckshot that goes to all the different pieces that are causing the decline. The surprise to me was that as someone who was classically trained in medicine and had no interest in anything about integrative medicine or any functional medicine, any of these things, when we began to translate what was coming out of the test tubes, we realized that it actually fit with a functional medicine model much better than with a classical medicine model. So again, I, I wasn't interested in that medicine. I was pushed into it by the science itself. When you actually look at what drives the process. So we've had a lot of pushback from people who are still asking what it is and they want to write a prescription. And by the way, I think the prescriptions are going to be wonderful in association with an overall precision medicine and personalized protocol. But you need to address the other pieces. So, so that's the, the, the reason that we started saying, okay, we need to have software that supports this. And so I started working with a group from Silicon Valley, actually a group that most of these guys had worked at Apple before, Lance Kelly and his team, uh, Bill Lippa and Sho Okada, and a number of these other people. Um, and we set up an algorithm so that we can now go from kind of from A to Z, looking at what are all the critical pieces. You know, as you know, when you evaluate someone with cognitive decline at a classical center, you get a very tiny data set. You find out, you know, serum sodium, serum potassium. Typically, people look for a, as a B12. They look at a TSH. Um, and then they'll do some imaging, but they really don't have much of a data set. And therefore, 
to them, it seems that this disease came out of nowhere. And so they typically tell people, you have Alzheimer's, and we don't know what causes it. Well, if you look at the various things, and we've, you know, with over 150,000 published papers uh, on this particular topic, there's a lot that we can all glean from these many wonderful published papers, from the epidemiologists and the pathologists, the microbiologists, the toxicologists, etc. So when we use these much larger data sets and look at what is driving this, you get a much better view. And you can say to people, okay, in your case, it's probably A, B, C, D, E. These are the things that we want to drive it to. Now, there's a big caveat here. It may be that what we've all learned from the epidemiologists about associations with insulin resistance and with herpes simplex and with uh, you know leaky gut and these various things and changes in microbiome, it could be that all of these will turn out to be associations that are non-causal. But this is where the theory coming out of the test tubes actually helps us. What it suggests is, in fact, is that these are causal, that these are things that actually do contribute through molecules like NF-kappa-B and alpha-secretase and phosphorylation of tau and these things. So when you put the theory together with the epidemiology and the pathology, you get a beautiful picture of this interesting neurodegenerative network. And this tells you that we now need to focus on much larger data sets. Therefore, very helpful to have the coders, to have the software, and to be able to now look at larger data sets. And I think this the same sort of thing is going on everywhere. People are doing this in oncology. People are doing this, for example, with IFM, with functional medicine. We're all beginning to look at these much larger data sets because we're recognizing that you know humans are very complex organisms. And therefore, the old idea of taking a very small data set and then writing a prescription, uh, great for a simple disease like pneumococcal pneumonia, but has not been working well for these complex chronic illnesses. So that's the reason for the software. Mm-hmm. That's great. So let's just switch to a couple topics that are really kind of close to my heart. So one is uh, genetics. Uh, of course, we know that a very significant proportion of Americans carries either one or two copies of epoe 4 which uh, significantly increases risk of the development of Alzheimer's disease. And I know that you created the program that actually would identify um, this risk as a risk factor and try to prevent Alzheimer's from happening, the so-called pre-code program. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's been interesting. Again, everything has been backward because of the way people consider this disease. So as you know, the recommendation, and actually it's still the recommendation at standard centers, is that you don't want to know your genetics. You don't want to know your APOE4. And of course, this is the most common risk factor, as you indicated, millions of Americans. So about three quarters of us are APOE4 negative. Our risk is about 9% for our lifetime. Not zero, but not terribly high. Uh, about 75 million Americans have a single copy of APOE4, so they're either APOE3, 4, or 2, 4. And their risk is about 30% lifetime risk to develop Alzheimer's. 
And then about 7 million Americans have two copies, so they're homozygous. Their risk is well over 50%. Most likely they will develop Alzheimer's during their lifetime. And again, the vast majority don't know it. And so what we want to do is have everybody identify. Everybody should know their risk just as they know their blood pressure, just as they know their lipid numbers and things like that. You should know your genetics. And of course, there are multiple other things like TREM2, for example. But but as, as we talked about, APOE4 is the, is the most common risk factor. And so people should know that and get on active prevention. There's a wonderful website started by a woman who herself is APOE44 called APOE4.info, and people share information, uh, and actually they're doing very, very well. The vast majority are on some version of the pre-code program or the recode program that we developed. So the idea is you want to then look, if you're APOE4 positive especially, and especially if there's any uh, Alzheimer's in your family, you want to know what are my risk factors because this is another feature of these chronic conditions that they by the time you get significant symptoms they're mostly over and you know the classic one you know chronic renal failure by the time you have symptoms of renal failure you've lost about 80% of your glomerular filtration rate same thing by the time you you have symptoms of parkinson's disease you've lost about 80% of the dopaminergic input to your striatum so by the time you have a diagnosis of alzheimers you've had about 20 years of pathophysiology underlying, and that's been shown very clearly by combinations of spinal fluid analysis uh, and PET scan, uh, chronic you know, the longitudinal uh, PET scans. So we really want to get at this much earlier, and there are PET scan changes that people with APOE4 have even into their late 20s. So we want to know if you have ongoing inflammation, if you've got pathogens, if you've got you know poor dentition, if you've got microbiome changes. Great to identify these things early great to address them. And really, this should be, what we call Alzheimer's disease should be a rare disease, not such a common disease. Everybody should be able to get on appropriate prevention. And by the way, we haven't had a single person on prevention who's actually converted to dementia. Now we'll see, you know, these are still relatively early days. Maybe we will 10 years from now. Um, The corollary to that is people who have improved, who had cognitive decline, um, have been able to continue and sustain their improvement. The longest ones we have now started in 2012, so we're now up to nine years that people have been on the program with sustained improvement. So we really recommend that just as everyone knows, get a colonoscopy when you turn 50. Everyone should get a cognoscopy when they turn 45, or if they're already past 45, please get a cognoscopy. Absolutely. And, you know, we are at GW trying to form a program. Uh, We already have, uh, of course, the GW Center for Integrative Medicine is partnering with Apollo and having a number of patients with you guys. But we hope that the GW as a whole enterprise uh, eventually will embrace the program and uh, figure out how to move forward. Well, hopefully one day we'll have just like Dean Ornish after 16 years or whatever it was to have the insurances covered. Hopefully one day we'll have a universal coverage here. But, you know, I have... And I have to say what you're doing at GW is fantastic. I really have to commend you tremendously. If you have programs for prevention, these should be ongoing yeah, yeah. everywhere. Well, I have I have one more topic, a specific topic that I, I wanted to touch upon. It's dear, near and dear to my heart. Uh, Janet, of course, knows what that is, and we have a number of podcasts about this. 
And I think you and I talked a little bit about this in the past. I, I do think that the cannabinoids, uh, exogenous cannabinoids, going to have some role here to play, especially since we do know that uh, anandamide, anandamide decreases with age and, and also quite deficient in patients with Alzheimer's disease. And it's a tricky yeah. topic uh, because, of course, people who are heavy users actually uh, appear to be uh, losing memory. Um, and yet in animal studies, the data is pretty clear that the addition of certain amounts of specific cannabinoids can actually help the memory. So what's your opinion? Do you know anything about just want it, to it's it, I'm, I'm you know, it's it's a difficult topic. I'm aware of it, but I want to just to hear your take on it. Yeah, you know, this is a really good point. And there are a number of these things, you know, we have, to, we have to remember this is not a simple illness. And so there are a number of these things that have both a positive and a negative effect. And the question is, which one outweighs the other one? And again, if you if you can target it the right amounts, the right people on you know, getting appropriate feedback, often you get very good results. So I think that there's absolutely, and as you said, you know, the, this particular system, the cannabinoid system, are very important. And so I do think that there's a tremendous opportunity here. Um, and, you know, people have tried to improve in, in, the, in the past, for example, tried to improve Alzheimer's with statins. That's never worked. Uh, but statins do have some positive effects and they have some negative effects. Uh, so, again, it depends on who the person is. It depends on other things. But I agree, certainly the simplest, just the CBD oil for people who may be using this for relaxation, for sleep, things like that. Um, THC over time, as, as you know, can impair memory. So again, you have to find that sweet spot, but I absolutely agree with you. There's other work on things like plasmalogens, where again, people are finding plasmalogens are quite low in Alzheimer's disease. Will replacing those be better? Um, so I think that you know, what's really exciting to me is now that we've seen many people who have improved, hundreds and hundreds of people with improvement and people doing well on prevention, we can continue to improve this, improve this over time as we identify key factors such as cannabinoid receptors that seem to play important roles in the degenerative process. So I do think there's a lot of promise there. So what excites you the most? It's a huge topic, of course. You just mentioned some things like, um, you know, that are, some of them are very new. And But what do you, what's in your mind is the sort of the hottest topic in Alzheimer's? Well, we're doing what's called the ARC project. And so the idea is we should be able to get larger data sets on people with each of the major neurodegenerative diseases. We've already started with some people with macular degeneration, um, people with ALS, Parkinson's, Lewy body, uh, PSP, all of these things. And I believe that each one of these represents a mismatch in their specific neural subsystem. You know, it takes something for, for your motor manipulation that is critical for Parkinson's. It takes something for the power that you that is lost in ALS. It takes something in Alzheimer's for that neuroplasticity. So I'm excited by the, the idea that we should be able to combine things like stem cells, where there have been some wonderful outcomes, and yet people are kind of trying to rebuild the house as it's burning down. They're not getting rid of what's actually causing the problem. So I believe that combining these different modalities, including specific targeted drugs, including these various modalities, and I would include even things like plasmapheresis, uh, which you know alters the uh, the innate system, innate immune system to adaptive immune system uh, relationship, which is abnormal in both COVID nineteen and 
uh, and in Alzheimer's. Uh, I, I believe that optimizing neurochemistry with this huge and growing arsenal, to me, that's the most exciting. I think the outcomes are going to get better and better. I think we're going to be able to show this initially anecdotally, subsequently in clinical trials. And I think that's going to change entirely the way we uh, evaluate, prevent, and treat neurodegenerative diseases. Dr. Bredesen, I just had an aha moment. Yes. Where does what you're doing intersect with personalized medicine or precision medicine? Yeah, so what we're doing is precision medicine, and that's the... Okay, the, thank you. Yes, so the... Yeah, the, the <laughs> I would say beyond that, it's a it's a precision medicine at its absolute best. I mean, you can't think of I personally cannot think of any other program out there that it's more precise, to be honest with you, because it's a perfect combination of a slew of factors that are extremely personal. You're identifying, you know, as as Dale said, you know, thirty f- plus different points. Then you're putting them into the software that helps you to analyze it. Just because you know, analyzing something like thirty five factors all in one practitioner's head is not an easy task. So we have computers to help. And then the protocol, so, you know, protocols is exceedingly individualized. Yeah, I would add that it's, this is essentially precision medicine meets uh, root cause medicine. So the idea is in precision medicine, for example, with oncology, you know, you don't care whether the person got the cancer because they smoked or because they got exposed to benzene. What you care about is what's driving it now. With this, we're combining the idea that we want to know what's driving it with what started it, what's upstream. Because unlike with cancer, this seems to be an ongoing thing. You know, with cancer, you have specific somatic mutations, and then the cancer is off and running. But with this, it seems that you know most of the people that Misha's seeing, that I'm seeing, that many other physicians are seeing, they have ongoing contributors. So we want to combine the precision medicine approach with the root cause analysis to get best outcomes. And we look currently at 150 variables, but you know some of these are historical. Uh, but it should be 150 million. I mean, you know, we're uh, whole genomes and things like that. We're doing more now uh, looking at, at larger data sets that include parts of the genome. We're not yet including the whole genome. And that's, that's where things you know, must go. Uh, you can do that you know, very easily now. Uh, and so, you know, you can't really have a person, if, if you put 3.3 billion base pairs in front of your nose and say, okay, figure out the problem, um, you can't do that without a computer. And so I think they're going to be contributing more and more to, you know, where, what's the pattern for methylation here? What's the pattern for uh, other detox apparatus? What's, your, what's the pattern for all your glutathione-related genes? And then what's the pattern for, you know, your ERMI score in your home? And how much are you exposed to specific mycotoxins? And which ones are more important and less important? And given your symptoms, is this more likely or less likely to be that, that the mycotoxins are an important part of this? So all of this will be ferreted out ultimately by artificial intelligence, but we need to begin to, uh, to gather those data and begin to act on them. And so I think that's, to me, what's going to be exciting in the upcoming years. But for the, for the first time, we really have an opportunity to make big impacts on people with neurodegeneration, both in the prevention and then the reversal sides. I think this is a good spot to wrap yeah. this up. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, before we sort of let Dale go, um, so the two book, two, your, two of your books are out. Uh, yes. Of course, the first one, The End of Alzheimer's and The End of Alzheimer's Program is out. And paperback. Um, by the way. 
Well, yeah, I just finished reading the second book. But I hear the news that the third one is coming up soon. Do you want to give our listeners just a little preview? Yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, so the first one was about kind of the science behind it and, you know, how does this work? The second one, people said we want more details. So that was the program on the end of Alzheimer's program. But the third one, I really wanted to get something out that was a, that was written by people who actually went through this, to have them talk about what it felt like to be told that there was no hope and then what it felt like to get better. So we have seven people. It's called the first survivors of Alzheimer's. We have seven people. Uh, the first one came in in 2012. Um, and is still doing very, very well. And she wrote her story, Patient Zero. Um, and then other people who came in 2013, 2014, et cetera, um, and were told that by their physicians initially that there was no hope. Um, they all got better. They're all doing very well. And they wrote about what it was like to do this. And so they're very heartwarming stories. I have to say, they're really, they, they, really, uh, they really are touching. Um, and then in addition to that, um, I put in you know, updates on the protocol, you know, where things are headed, uh, and you know, the comments for each of these people about uh, you know, what, what they went through and why is it that we did the things that we did for each person. So they also talk, by the way, about you know, what worked best for them. So I'm hoping that people will be touched by this, but also see things for themselves that will help them to do better. Well, that's great. Maybe uh, when the book is out, maybe we can have you and one of your patients come back. Come back. Yeah. That would be great. Yes. I would love that. It's coming out in August. So, yeah, uh -huh. we'd, we'd love to do that. Thank you. That's wonderful. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. And thank you so much, Jill, for joining us. Thank you, Misha. Thanks so much. And thank you, Janet. You're welcome. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Misha Kogan. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.